the scripture presents it as the primary, most important motivator for the Christian to live this life in every aspect for the glory of God. It's to have joy in every circumstance, to suffer well, to walk in obedience, to treasure Christ above all things. And really, how how can we do that? How can that be real in our lives? Especially in times of hardship, suffering. Um, And and this aspect then of, of the love of Christ is really what will compel and motivate and and renew us to have this sort of attitude. And uh, if we can grasp this more fully, I really it really radically transforms people. And so we need to understand then how the love of Christ manifests itself. And I, and I believe primarily three ways that I want to look at. The first thing is what Jesus is doing now and what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do, especially for His child, the believer, the Christian. And so we think about what does it mean to sustain? And I've already said a few of those words, but Scripture talks about this in several ways, especially in the Old Testament. Upholding, strengthening, supporting, these, these kinds of words, like, and when you look at the dictionary, it just talks about to bear weight up under without failing. So, so you're, he's bearing something up and he's not failing. And he causes to continue for an extended amount of time without interruption. Never for a moment is something messed up from God's point of view. It's always perfectly upheld, perfectly happening, exactly how God intends it to happen. And this is one way of what Jesus is doing now. So when we read Scripture, we come to Hebrews 1, chapter 3, and we learn that Christ upholds all things by the word of His power. We can turn there and look at that. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Okay, we'll read uh, from the first verse here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So we read that through the Son, the world was created. And He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now I'm reading from the ESV and it says the universe. Maybe yours says He upholds all things by the word of His power. And that, brethren, really is all things. Christ is sustaining all things in this world and outside of this world from, I mean, you think about, how expansive space really is. It's incredible. Galaxies, stars, billions of light years away. I don't even know how you measure that. How how far is a light year? Maybe some of you should have researched that. But it's far, brother, and millions of light years away, and Christ is perfectly upholding everything. And it's by His Word. Simply His Word. The same way in which He created the world. God said, let there be light. 
and there was life. God created this world with his word. He upholds it by his word. And so, brethren, it's no secret that his word upholds us also. Everything is upheld by God. And it's down, it, it, it goes from the universe down to the smallest little thing. Every atom, every molecule of our being, every path of these atoms has been determined is, and is being worked out by God currently as we speak. If God were to take a break for a moment, I mean, just a moment, the world would implode. I mean, I don't even know what would happen. It would, it would cease to be. It could not continue on without God. Every little minute detail of him, his, his very attentive, loving, controlling aspect to it all. And he does it all the time for everything. And so this, I say this because it helps us put God in his proper place and us in our proper place. The sustaining power of God to uphold the universe is immense. Immense. I mean, and we think for us how, how difficult or maybe not difficult, but how much effort it requires us to accomplish even a simple task. All of our, all of our mindset has to be like given to that thing. And multitasking beyond a few things is very hard. We can't possibly give our attention to it all. And yet God himself is over here saying, I'm upholding the whole universe all the time, including whatever we're trying to accomplish. And the beautiful thing about this and how this manifests God's love, uh, how this kind of shows the, the power of God's love for us, is that all these things that God does upholding the universe is done according to Romans 8.28 for our good for the good of the believer. And he has so intertwined everything that, that they're one thing, so that whatever happens with the good of his people, that, that they're one thing, so that whatever happens for God's glory really is for our good. And so all things down, I mean, and you think about past ages for Christians in the past, how everything had to be so meticulously designed and organized for it to work out for our good is, is mind-boggling, really. And even unbelievers here are sustained in this way. Where, where you know, you who, who give no thought to God, you just go about your life doing what you want to do, God is upholding you. He really is. Every breath you draw comes from God. And you don't think about breathing. You can't, I mean, you can't much more control a beat of your heart then you can whether the sun comes up or go, goes down. And so you think you're, you're living your life the way you want to live it, and yet God the whole time is upholding you, sustaining you, causing you to live, allowing the sun to come up on you, when rightly, he should not. And so all the while, the unbeliever rebels against the good caretaking of his Father in heaven. He's calling you, unbeliever, to repentance. He's calling you to turn to Christ by faith and to live for the purpose which were, which, for which you were created, not your own desires. And, and considering all this, a lot of times with believers, 
we have a, uh, a mindset, and I know I struggle with this. I'll be the first one to admit. But this performance-based attitude is that we can offer God something. And this really is destructive to being sustained by the love of Christ. When we think that we really have to earn the love of Christ somehow, where we have to be pleasing enough to God, then hopefully we can get his favor and he can do something for us. And, and this puts our joy base, it's a joyless thing. I mean, it's constantly up and down if we're going to base our lives on that. We're going to be fluctuating with how we do each day. When we read our Bible, we feel great. When we have a day that's busy, and we feel so down. And that really is idolatry, brethren, because we're placing our works as the source of our happiness and the source of our joy and our comfort. When really that's a place reserved for God alone and what God has done. And so it's important to remember with this aspect of Christ demonstrating his love for us and his all-sustaining power for our good, that in and of ourselves, we cannot measure up. We could never earn God's favor by what we do. The measure of God's standard for holiness is absolutely unattainable by anyone, and that's what necessitated Christ to come. If it were attainable, Paul says right there, then this, all this Christianity stuff would be for no reason. Christ coming to die, we would still be in the old way of trying to keep the law. And think about this from Acts 17, just to, to drive this point home. Acts 17, in verses 24 through 31. This is Paul in Athens speaking in the Areopagus to those people there. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You see, this is the God who made everything. He doesn't need anything from any of us since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything that we have comes from God. Everything. And He made one man from every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, what that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each one of us. And then he goes on in verse 30, and he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that is Christ. So God upholds everything. He doesn't need anything from us. All that we would be led to repentance, that we would perhaps feel our way towards God to live for him as he intended. And so, it's important to remember, Christ demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet a sinner, He died for us. 
and that while we were yet sinners, before we had ever tried to offer anything to God, He died for us. We were unworthy in that state, completely unworthy. And the only way to be made worthy or acceptable to God was for Him to condescend down from heaven in the person of Christ and to die in our place that we would have forgiveness of sins in Christ's righteousness. It had nothing to do with us. We offered nothing to this plan, to this love that Christ has for us. We did not contribute it to contribute to it at all. It was all Him acting on our behalf when we didn't want it. And so th this brings me to the most important kind of sustaining about what Christ has done and how He sustains us in our Christian life by what He's done for us. And this is the kind of sustaining that, you know, it's personal. Christ ministers to each, each of His children in such a way so as to strengthen us, to strengthen you, to cause you to, to love Him, to cause you to bear fruit, no matter the circumstance. Unbelievers don't partake in this kind of sustaining. This is reserved for the believer, the, the genuine Christian. And Christ not only keeps you, you know, alive, just making it through whatever situation you're in, He actually causes you to bear fruit in these difficult circumstances. And, and how are we sustained by Christ? So this is where I'm starting. So how does this love, then, for what Jesus has done for us, sustain us? It's by faith. By faith, we are sustained by the love of Christ and what He's done for us. Now that may sound like, uh, really? You know, by faith? Okay, I know that this is all by faith. But really, it comes down to knowing and believing what the Word of God says. Remember, He sustained, He created the universe from His Word. He sustains it by His Word, and it's His Word which tells us that Christ died for us. It's His Word which tells us what He's done for us in love to redeem us. And it's by knowing what He's done, by believing what He's done in Christ, and living our life based upon it that we will be sustained, a sure promise that we will be upheld by this reality. And so you must be a believer. John 15, 4, about abiding in the vine, really, really proves this. If you look at just the fourth verse, he says, abide in me and I in you. This is Christ speaking to his disciples. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so here's the reality. In order to be sustained or bear any fruit at all, we need to be abiding in Christ. And how do we abide except by faith? In this passage, he's teaching abiding in the vine is salvation. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you become vitally connected to Christ. Like the branch is vitally connected to the vine and it bears fruit because the vine's supplying its energy. And it's the same way with Christ and the Christian. We become vitally connected to Christ by faith. We're, we're immediately becoming born again, blood-washed people whose sins are forgiven and given strength and energy to bear fruit. In fact, he promises that those who are abiding in Christ bear fruit and then they're pruned so that they could bear 
more fruit, right? And so by faith, we become vitally connected to Christ, and thus we bear fruit by faith, trusting, knowing Jesus Christ is strengthening us. And so it's recalling Scripture, holding on to it for dear life, knowing that this is true, and it's by this reality in Scripture that I will be upheld, that I will bear fruit. And he says something incredible later in, in 15.9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So the same way by which we abide in Christ to bear fruit through the vine, we're told to abide in his love. And how do we abide in his love? But by faith in his love, right? And so we have to have faith in Christ that what he's done for us and that he loves us. I mean, there's, there's enough here for a lifetime of meditation. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, believer. The same love that the Father has for the Son, Christ has for you. It's exactly this kind of faith that will motivate you, that will cause you to, to desire, to want to give your life to Christ for a purpose. He loves you beyond anything you can imagine. And He has done for us that which is, I mean, incomprehensible. And so it's Jesus becomes the primary source of our love for us. Or, or Jesus' love for us becomes the primary source of our sustainment. And so how exactly does Jesus' love sustain us? And we look at a perfect example of this in Luke 7 and 36.50. The sinful woman forgiven. I just want to read a little bit of this here. Starting with the... Uh, now, if you remember what's going on here, so Jesus is invited to this Pharisee's house, Simon the Pharisee, and a sinful woman, as she's called, enters, weeping with tears, and she's washing Jesus' feet, and she's wiping them with her hair and anointing him with oil. And Simon the Pharisee is thinking... What is this? If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is. And he asks Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. He says, say it, teacher. Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Verse 30, 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, that is, Jesus said to Simon, you have judged rightly. And then he goes on to say that this woman loved much because she was forgiven much. And that Simon loves little because he's forgiven little. This is not teaching us, real quickly, that there's only some people that have a little bit of sin that needs forgiven, and then there's some people that have more sin. So, so almost like, the worse sinner you were before coming to Christ, the more you're going to love Christ. That's not his point. His point is this woman realized how far in debt she was to God, right? This parable is used to show how far in debt you are to God. That a man who owes so much money that he cannot possibly pay back, and he recognizes this debt is beyond me to pay back. There's no way I'm going to get there. And it's forgiven. 
And the man who has a little bit of debt who thinks, oh, I could possibly have done this. I mean, it would have only taken me like, you know, a month or a year or whatever, and I would pay it back. So he's not realizing his indebtedness to Christ is so far beyond what it is that he's not really thankful. Like Simon the Pharisee, he doesn't think he has all that much sin that needs forgiven anyways. He's a pretty righteous guy. And this woman over here is willing to be embarrassed to weep over Jesus' feet in front of these righteous people, quote, the Pharisees. And and Jesus is saying, no, look, this woman understands something of her indebtedness to God. She knows how much she needs her sin forgiven, whereas Simon doesn't, they don't really care about what Jesus has to offer him because he thinks he's pretty good with God. And it's like that with us in Christ. The more we comprehend just how far in debt we are to Christ, just how far apart from salvation we owe Jesus and we owe God, there's no way we could cover that of, of our own deeds, of our own doing. We need help. We need the mercy of God to forgive us our sins. And, and basically, what I want to do here is just say, okay, I want us to understand what Christ has done for us in the gospel, right? We are so far indebted. When we look at Romans 3, there, that little passage about how, how man has turned away, no one seeks after God, no one does good, no one is righteous, no, not one. Together they have become worthless, right? They have the venom of asps under their lips. This is describing each and every one of us. No matter how good of a person you may think you are, apart from Christ, this reality that you're worthless, you've become like a stench to God, abominable. Again, we grasp it by faith. Taking God's word to say, yes, that was me because God said that was me. It's not my own experience. It's not what I think I am to God before salvation. That, that cheapens what Christ has done for you. But when you recognize exactly what you are before Christ, before your salvation, that you're a wretch, a literal evil wretch, and that then God, this holy, perfect being, can, can be around no sin. He hates sin and has perfect judgment against sin. That his love for the lost person, for you, is such that he would send his son to die. Right? John 3.16 For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He so loves the world that he is willing to give his own son to die and to suffer in your place. Now, those who don't believe in Christ, I, I want you to think about this. Grasp this for a moment. Remember we were talking about we were, we were unworthy, totally unworthy. And the only way to be made worthy was the great cost of the Son of God coming down to live a life, leaving the glories of heaven, live a life in this world, suffer as a man, immense suffering, and then suffer under the wrath of God in our place, in your place, sinner, in your place. God poured out all the wrath that he has reserved against your sin and my sin. He poured it out onto Jesus, and Jesus suffered it, and he felt it, every last bit of it. And Jesus was utterly forsaken of God. 
And this is why we can go to Scripture and hold on to the promise that Christ will never, God will never leave me nor forsake me. Because there was one forsook in your place. It was Christ who took that upon himself when we rightly deserve it. So this is what Christ has done for us. This is the great love which he has for each person that we need to think about. We need to to contemplate when times are hard and when times are tough to remember. No, Jesus Christ had a tough time. He had a hard time enduring every temptation that we endure and yet remained sinless. And not only that, brethren, but died for us, taking our place to pay an eternal hell which we could never pay. This, for the believer, draws out of you as a the, the only appropriate response, thankfulness and joy and a, and a desire and a heart that says, if this is the case, I will live for Christ with everything I have. What is there to hold back? He's loved me in this way. He's done that for me. And I don't deserve it. What is worth living for on my own? Paul says this very same thing here. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, his, his point is this. For the love of Christ controls us. He's talking about him and his missionary helpers there. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was raised. Paul grasped the gospel. This reality that Christ died for him and it controlled him. It compelled him. And if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, brethren, it's good enough for us. And the problem is a lot of times we just don't grasp it. We just don't get it. We, it, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us at times because we're thinking about all manner of other things. But we must come back again and again and again. And suffering really has a way of bringing this out of us. When times are good, we, it's easy to forget about the love of Christ for us because you know, things are, are great and, you know, and yeah, Christ died for me, wonderful, and everything's awesome, and you're just living your life. But then when suffering comes and there's something there where which you need help and you recognize this isn't going away on its own, and there, this thing's out of my control. If I don't beseech God for help, there's no help. Where do you go? What do you do? The only place to go is to Christ. And the only reason we can go there is because of the love which He has for us. Because we know that whatever we ask in His name, the Father will do for us because He loves us, because He, he purchased us, He redeemed us, He made us His people. A people who were not his people, a people deserving of wrath, Christ took and, and made them worthy to come to ask things from him. And it glorifies Christ, right? If God said that if if I have not given my own if I've gave my own son, how much more am I not willing to give you all things? And this comes from his great love for us and what he's done to, to give us Christ. 
And so we obey God then when we, when we believe this by faith, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He's done what he says he's done. Primarily dying on the cross in my place. Primarily living in my place to earn my righteousness, right? When we grab a hold of this, we're born again. When we put our faith into this reality, God so changes us and gives us a new heart that then we become his children. And we begin to conform to the image of Christ and bear fruit like the vine does out of, we can't help it. It's just the natural response. It overflows out of this connection now to Christ that this new heart God gives us has no choice but to obey the Lord and not to earn his favor, not to earn his love, but because we already have his favor and because he's loved us. We're thankful for that. And that's a huge distinction we have to get right in our Christian lives. That we, we go on in obedience. We go on obeying Christ. And the reason we're able to just, like we've been hearing these messages on, on pride. How is there strength to be humble in a scenario in which pride just wants to come out and, and say what needs to be said here? And to, to be able to take that and put it away and put on humility is through grasping that it's looking to Christ. Christ was the humble one, like Mark was saying last week, on our behalf in Philippians 2. He it, it demonstrated perfect humility. And it's in there that we derive strength now because we are his child, because we have this new heart, to respond in a Christ-like way. Every other religion of the world wants to tell you that man is responsible in one way, shape, or another to, to somehow make himself appeasing to God, to, to their God, whatever God they believe in. Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, all these. You have to somehow do something in hopes that God will accept you. And you can never really be certain at the end of the day that God has accepted you. But Christianity is the, the one religion, totally different, that Christ has condescended, has done all the work on our behalf, and then we obey him out of a thankful heart in response to this being made perfect, not to earn our perfection. So let us, let us just not look to our own performance from where we derive our joy. Our, our, our true joy, our true motivation in the Christian life is on a solid bedrock of His accomplished work for us. Right? I, I hope I'm being clear. It is unshakable then. Nobody can take your joy from you, not even the works that you perform. Right? There are works to be done, but as I'm saying, these flow from a completely different mindset, from a different heart, from a different attitude than one that tries to just be pleasing to God so that either I can feel better or he can be happy. But because we have this right standing with God, we obey him. And that brings me to the last point really about 
Christ's love manifested for us and what he will do. And this is a lesser motivation, but is a motivation for certain. And this should should be, it's like Christ, what he has done in the gospel to make us his children, but then what he has, what he will be doing for us in the future, they go hand in hand. You can't, you can't separate the two. And I know I've talked about this before, perhaps in that college study where where sometimes people have an idea, Christians, well-meaning Christians, and I've heard this a lot, and I myself used to think this, but the more I would read Scripture, it's almost like, you know, I don't, I don't really care about any of the rewards in heaven. I don't care about all this other stuff. You know, as long as I have Christ, which is exactly right, so hear me out. But yet, Christ and the Scriptures hold out reward in heaven as a motivation for us to obey and to press on and to do radical things for Christ just to obey Him, right? When Christ says, sell your treasures on earth and you will have money bags in heaven, brethren, we want those money bags in heaven. They're not like earthly money bags. You see, here we have such an earthly mindset that thinks money, like money in heaven, money money's not like a thing, you know? If you have these rewards in heaven, what? But do we really think Christ is telling us to get money, literal money in heaven that there is to pay for and buy stuff? Like you're going to have a bigger mansion in heaven, you know, or, or your wings are going to sparkle more than other angels' wings? I don't know. But this is how we tend to think about rewards. It's like they're this thing off to the side. But Scripture really presents them as part of who Christ is. They're inseparable. The reality of of seeing more glory in heaven is available to you based upon how you live your life in this world. I'm not going to pretend to act like I know exactly what these rewards are. But when we when we read what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, so we do not lose heart. Why? This light momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory. What could he possibly mean? This light momentary, whatever affliction it is that you're going through, and there are immense afflictions and sufferings. And I don't want to take that away, right? But but compared to what God is storing up for us because of that affliction, that whatever it is you're going through, it would cause you to say, Bring on the, the afflictions. If I could see the glory that was stored up for me in heaven, just a glimpse, just a glimpse. It's storing up such an eternal weight of glory that is going to be able to be held by the believer that if you had not experienced the affliction, would not be there to some degree. And so we can then, we can be like Christ, right? Who who in Hebrews 12, think about this. It says, where do I have it? I have it written down. I, I want to quote that. I'm going to go there because I don't want to mess it up. In Hebrews 12, brethren, you, many of you know this. We'll start in verse 1 and just, just to verse 3. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus Christ endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. This joy of knowing his work, accomplishing God's work of purchasing a redeemed, his bride, really. He could get a glimpse of that into eternity to see all of the redeemed there. And it sustained him and motivated him to endure the cross, to despise the shame of it, and to go willingly to earn, or yeah, to, to earn, to purchase those believers. And that sustained Christ. That will sustain us if we have the same future mindset and outlook. Not that we, not that we're like Christ and that we're we're looking to earn our salvation, but we look as Christ has earned it for us. And so the joy there then set before us is this eternal glory that's already been bought for us. So it's it's a little different than Christ, but nonetheless, we're to look to Jesus for it. That's what it tells us. He set the example. He ran the race before us perfectly. And so because Christ has done that for us, then we are able to use that as motivation to look to him, how he handled it, and say, we are able then to walk in his footsteps. He's enabling us as believers to walk that same path in which he walked. And then again in verse 3 in Hebrews 12, he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that what, brethren, you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, we're told to consider Christ as a means of, of not growing weary, as a means of staying strong in the fight, in the race. Why should we run this race, brother? Why? I mean, sometimes it really does feel like, what am I doing here? This is not worth it. This is hard. This is difficult. The Christian life is, it's not an easy one, right? The, the path is narrow and, and hard is the way. But we endure because we consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility. Again, remember, in your place, believer, everything Jesus did in this world to come down was for you. Yes, it was to obey the Father's plan from before time, but the Father's plan was to redeem a people. The Father's plan was to purchase you, to deliver you from hell for eternity. And he came to this world to endure such hostility so that you might be strengthened in this life to do the same so that there would be real help for the believers to walk this life, to, to be obedient, to endure hostility from sinners, and yet look to Christ and, and count it joy, that I'm counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And that just totally flips the hardship of the Christian life upside down. When, when we really grasp this, that Christ loves us so much and that he endured these things for us in our place before us, that we could then go walk in obedience and, and do the same. 
That's the motivator, the true key motivator, I believe, from the scriptures to get us to walk in such a way that when hardship comes, when it seems difficult, that we would obey Christ, that we would still find energy and strength to be obedient, to respond in love. Because again, brethren, it's for his glory, ultimately. It's not for us, it's for him. It's that our hearts want to magnify and make much of Christ because of all this, because of the love which he has for us. And the more we grasp it, brethren, the more we grasp all the ways in which Christ's love is manifested towards us, and the more we believe it by faith, again, we, we lean upon it, we live our lives in light of it, only then is there strength then to continue on. So the more we see it, brethren, the more we will bear fruit for God and be strengthened to bear fruit for God. So let me just uh, wrap this up and, and encourage us, brethren, that first of all, the person who's not a Christian here today, truly think there is a life, there is a glory awaiting you. Christ has done so much for you and he's patient with you. And he's calling you through everything that happens in your life to repentance, to turn and seek him, to leave your old ways behind, brethren. Lost person, forsake all your sin. It's not worth it. Hell is the destination for you if you do not accept Christ. And hell is... It's a whole other sermon, but you don't want to be there. You don't. And I do plead with you to, to think about all that Christ has done so that to make it available to have your sins forgiven so you don't have to go there. Because the day is coming when, when it's, appointed, it's appointed for man to die once. You're going to die, and after that comes judgment. Then what? Then you've got to stand before God and give an account for everything you've ever thought, said, done. And there's no escape at that point. And if you're honest with yourself, you know your life is not even close to measuring up. You know you're not good enough to stand before God. Don't lie to yourself. If you will come to Jesus by faith, if you will simply repent from your sins, you will acknowledge you're a sinner, agree with God that you're a sinner, you deserve hell, and you put your faith in the one who has redeemed you, or has made the ability for you to be redeemed by suffering in your place, you must believe it. You must. You must grab a hold of it by faith. And when you do, then such glory awaits you that you will give up anything and everything in this life for him for Him, because He enables you, because He empowers it, because He truly is better than life. He is. And then believer, I just, I, I plead with you too. Christ is absolutely worth everything. 
He is worth your complete and total allegiance. And I know, brother, he has in the deepest part of the Christian, we are his and there's nothing we can do about it. And it's because he holds on to us that that's the case. But there's the reality in which we do need to act. We do need to to think about these things to, to gain the motivation. But we go, we act in faith. We continue on in obedience and faith, knowing that these things are so. Knowing that when we suffer and we remain obedient, God will avenge us. God is preparing an eternal weight of glory for us. Christ has done this for us. And so we go on motivated then in this Christian life that, that the hardest of times are still worth putting sin down, putting away every weight and sin, and clinging onto Christ for help. Well, let's pray. Father, I do pray that, th that this would uh, impact people. I pray that the things that have been spoken, Lord, were, were clear, were, were helpful. Lord, that you'd use this message in the lives of, of myself, of, of these dear people, your people, Lord, whom you love. I pray that you'd use this, Lord, to motivate, truly, to give such eyes that that cause us to see the future glory and to see the past cost that's been given to purchase such a glory. Lord, thank you for the love that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.